She was a young housewife with young children at home. And yes, I do mean married to a man. It was the late 1950s and early 60s. And she was a successful paperback writer, a writer of lesbian love stories. Scorned by the literary elite then, pulp fiction written by her and other authors, male and female, helped build the gay rights movement. Reading them now gives us an historical glimpse into gay and lesbian life in those times. Her name is Ann Bannon, and she's one of our guests tonight. She joins us from the studios of Capital Public Radio in Sacramento. Ann Bannon, welcome to Out in the Bay. Thank you, Eric. It's very nice to be here. My other guest this evening is a film and culture critic and also an author. She just finished the fourth book in her Lesbian Career Girls series, spoofs of 1960s high school girls' career primers that humorously pay homage to lesbian pulp fiction like Anne's from the last century. Monica Nolan is here with me in KLW's San Francisco studios. Welcome, Monica. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be here. We'll start with Anne Bannon. Anne, where were you in your life when you started writing lesbian love novels, and what led you to start writing them? Well, I was very stuck in a very stodgy marriage <laughs> that turned out on, on retrospect to have been a very bad mistake, except for two beautiful children. But um, I kind of sensed even then that I was going to be foreclosed from opportunities to meet other women and to connect with them. And so I think what I really did was sit down and, um, and I wrote these books to invent the life that I couldn't live in the real world. And uh, it brought me a lot of friendships. It brought me an immense amount of mail from uh, women all over the country, uh, even some men, because a great many men read these books. Um, it was a creative outlet at a time in my life that was pretty bleak in a lot of other respects. Um, I, of course, I had no notion that the books would uh, would have a life of any kind beyond uh, what was uh, ordinarily expected for that kind of ephemeral literature. Um, my, my fellow writers were people like Ray Bradbury and uh, Gore Vidal and Mickey Spillane. And they were so outstandingly wonderful that their stuff, of course, uh, had a life beyond that of, of the pulp paperbacks in which some of them were originally published. They were, they were really thought of the way a magazine is thought of. You picked it up. You enjoyed it. It was um, very temporal. It was tied to the month or two in which it came out. You picked it up to read it on your commute to work, and then you threw it away. And I think that's how many people treated uh, uh, pulp fiction. So you you really had no hope of ever being reviewed in the New York Times or the Saturday Review or any of the other uh, going concerns that took a serious interest in mm -hmm. books. So in it wasn't way, considered it was a serious blessing. literature. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And some of it, well, you know, rightly was viewed as just sleaze. Um for a great many reasons, including the very lively and very suggestive covers. Uh, the cover artists were, were brilliant and funny, and there were all kinds of clever visual jokes, but they were, frankly, sleazy covers, and <laughs> right. the books were slapped together with glue. You know, it was not a quality production. Um, but you could still, you know, you could make a lot of money with them. Where did the term where did the term pulp fiction come from and and is that a pejorative term? 
Well, it has become a pejorative term. It's kind of an umbrella term for any writing uh, like the, for example, the penny dreadfuls of the 19th century that are now back on people's minds because of a new television series. Uh, The penny dreadfuls were very similar. They were pitched to a uh, grand general audience, a kind of lowest uh, common denominator, and the pulp fiction novels were as well. The term pulp comes from the very cheap, crappy paper, (laughs) which is hardly much more than wood pulp held together with glue, and so thin that they would print on one side and the ink would bleed through into the print on the other. And uh, so people (laughs) would pick them up, and by opening the book, you would often crack or snap the spine. (laughs) Yes. So, they, you know, physically they didn't have a a durable life. Um, But I have to say they were cherished, they were saved, they were tucked under mattresses, they were tucked behind... um, people's dressers and the shoes in the closet to be taken out and savored over and over again because there had never been anything like that publishing phenomenon of books about young gay men and women available everywhere, on the newsstands, at the bus stop, in the drugstores, the uh, airports. They were everywhere that magazines were sold. And if you were young and gay in the 1950s, just to be able to reach out and read about people who were somehow getting through their lives, finding partners, finding ways to continue to enjoy life and to laugh every now and then, despite some grim endings, uh, there, there was, it was life-saving, literally, for many people. And I want you to, um, you know, to give folks a flavor of what we're talking about. You've selected a couple of passages to read. And I did read all of Bebo Brinker, and uh, I've, I've started Odd Girl Out, but I haven't mm-hmm. gotten a few. You said there's, uh, you're going to read the first uh, sex scene between Laura and Beth, and I haven't gotten there yet. So um, it's okay. I, I can handle that it's going to be, you know, you're going to bring me ahead a little farther than I am right now. <laughs> Okay. Well, Beth and Laura are two young women who are sorority sisters. Uh, Beth is the elder of the two, a dark-haired beauty and kind of a campus leader. Laura is young, very unsecure, uh, doesn't really know herself, and has never been able to face up to her feelings. But she is deeply attracted to Beth. Beth is a little cavalier with her, but she's attracted too. So they're sharing a room. They're on a day bed in their shared uh, room in their sorority house. And uh, this is the beginning of physical contact between the two of them. Mm, Beth murmured as Laura's hands began to trace the curves of her back. Oh, that's marvelous. She shivered a little, and Laura trembled with her. Under my pajamas, Laura. Warily, Laura lifted the pajama shirt and groped for the ripe, smooth warmth beneath. Oh, yes, Beth sighed. And Laura's hands descended to their enthralling task again, caressing the flawless hollows, the sweet shoulders. She was lost to reason now. She parted the hair that hid Beth's neck and drew her fingers lightly over the white nape. She leaned closer, hardly aware that she moved. 
With a swift thrill of necessity, she bent and kissed the softness for a long moment. Then sudden fear pulled her up. She put her hand up to her mouth and stared in terror at Beth. Beth lay perfectly still, a faint smile on her lips. Beth, said Laura. Beth? The whisper quailed. Oh, Beth, say something. Forgive me. Say something. Are you mad at me? Beth whispered softly, no. A wash of heat flooded Laura's face. She bent over Beth and began to kiss her like a wild, hungry child, pausing only to murmur, Beth, Beth, Beth. Beth rolled over on her back and looked up at Laura, reaching for her, breathing hard and smiling a little, and her excitement consumed the last of Laura's reserve. Her lips found Beth's and found them welcoming. You know, actually, I did read that, because actually, that's at the very beginning. It's like the prologue, isn't it? It it sort of is, and I will tell you that you have to be 22 to write like that. <laughs> Without any dirty words. No, <laughs> or, or words. I shouldn't say dirty words, but words we're not supposed to say on, on public radio. Very true, which I will forbear to say. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think this is the moment I need to bring Monica Nolan into the conversation now because, uh, first of all, I'll just mention, Monica has written four books so far in her Lesbian Career Girls series. Lois Lenz, Lesbian Secretary, Bobby Blanchard, Lesbian Gym Teacher, Maxie Mainwaring, Lesbian Dilettante, and due out this fall, Dolly Dingle, Lesbian Landlady. She's going to read for, for, us, uh, for us as well, but I want to read a little bit from Monica's blog, Pulp and Pep, which you can find at MonicaNolan.com. She says, It was the Nyad edition of Journey to, a Woman, Journey to a Woman, one of Anne Bannon's books, that introduced me not only to Anne Bannon, but also to the world of lesbian pulp. The 70s feminist cover I saw when I pulled the book off the shelf of my dorm common room in 1985 did not prepare me for the heavy-breathing soap opera I found inside, a style so foreign to our, to our irony-heavy 80s sensibility that my friends and I passed it around, reading bits aloud, snorting with laughter. Snorting with laughter, yes, but unable to stop reading until we'd followed the story through increasingly over the top twists to its happy conclusion. I read the other books in the series and even made a film inspired by them, but it's only after diving into the world of lesbian pulp that I realized how groundbreaking Bannon really was. So there's um, uh, kudos to you, Anne, but also um, just the, the whole dorm room setting of Laura and Beth. So, it's so great. It's It's got everything. It's, <laughs> it's the sorority girls. It's the massage that turns into something more... Um, I think it's, I remember that in my it's, life. <laughs> it's, well, and it's also, you know, what I love about your books, Anne, is that um, there's they, there's a really modern edge to them because it's uh, Beth in that scene is actually, you know, could be a contemporary, supposedly straight girl experimenting. It's It's got that going on, too. Well, you you have been very generous to those books, uh, Monica. And I, it's such I a thrill to hear you. you read them. I've I just was just <laughs> listening to you. It's so funny to hear your voice reading the words that I've read so many times. It's great. Oh, that's that's wonderful. And you have carried the tradition on with great brilliance. I'm very <laughs> proud of your work. <laughs> I, I have it's my really my share wonderful. of ripe flesh. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us then, how did these books help the gay community? You know, this is, in, in the case of your books, Anne, it was before Stonewall, before the Compton Cafeteria riots. You talked a little bit about it, how this helped individuals, like, sort of find each other and realize there were other people like them out there. Are there other ways in which they, you know, helped galvanize? 
Well, I think so. I think without meaning to, we kind of were the beginning of a a foundation or a launch pad for uh, all the wonderful work that was to follow. Uh, we were doing this, most of us, in the uh, 50s to the mid-60s, and um, I think it gave a lot of courage and momentum to young gay people of that of that era. Uh, remember, the Stonewall Rebellion came along in 1969 and became uh, a, a place where uh, the, the public generally could see what what a tremendous amount of uh, guts and uh, determination there was in a community that had been scorned for decades, for centuries, really. And suddenly their stories were being told and their stories were touching and inspirational, a little over the top, I grant you that, but... Um, but reflecting back to them themselves uh, in a kind of mirror the lives they were living every day. So at the time they came out, they served as a, a kind of refuge and a confirmation of of real lives. And in the years since then, I think they are not only a type of social history, but, uh, you know, Monica put her finger on this a little bit, They they... I think capture what it's like to be young, uncertain of yourself, um, perhaps facing a lot of opprobrium and rejection, and finding the, um, the that core of strength in yourself to to face up, to come out, and to live your life. And knowing that young people were doing it half a century ago and doing it successfully um, it adds to the, I think, the, the, the fiber of the uh, experience and, and sustains your, your determination. So, uh, yes, sure, they provided a sort of travel guide, a cook's tour of Greenwich Village at the time they were new. And it's fun to go back and reconstruct that kind of magical place, like the Castro is a magical place. Um, but it was so much more than that. I think it was uh, confirming to the astonishment of so many people, straight and gay, that Gay people were living next door. They were living under your roof. They were your uncle or your kid or your spouse, the people you worked with. Um, and they were just as sensible, thoughtful, creative, um, honorable people as everybody else. And everyone had thought of them as these carriers of a disease uh, for so many uh, decades. And no one had ever... Uh, really gotten to know who they were as human beings, so I think that was that that was part of that foundation that that launch pad that we constructed as a our contribution, one of many but but an important one. Well, and I think you also you also put it really well, Anne, because you said you were inventing the life you wanted to lead, and I think that's what those books did for a lot of people. They invented the life. You have to imagine what that life you know, what a, a gay lesbian community is going to look like, and you have to sort of invent it in your head before you can make it uh, make it happen. Yes, I, I think that's very true. Um, I, and I think what, ha what ultimately those books became uh, were, in the aggregate, they were my love letter to the women I would never know, the women whose lives I would never be able to share, um, I think they were warm, 
ultimately, despite some very uh, lively histrionics in them, but but warm and accepting and um, in places even humorous and uh, affirming. So if, if if I'm not wrong in that, then that that was very helpful to a lot of women. You're listening to Out in the Bay. My name's Eric Jansen. My guests are Ann Bannon, who's in Sacramento at the Capitol Public Radio Studios. She's written, uh, was the author of a series of um, lesbian pulp fiction novels in the, in the 50s and 60s. And Monica Nolan here with me, who's written the Lesbian Career Girls series. And I wanted to ask you what you think might have happened if people beyond your close circle knew or did they know about the books that you were writing at that time when you were, you know, you were married and young? And where uh, were you living then? Were you in Sacramento already or were you, were you in the Midwest? No. We were down in Southern California oh. and, uh, yeah, in a little town called Sierra Madre. And uh, I was uh, very, very much a young mother with little kids hanging onto my knees and a very cranky husband. <laughs> uh, you know, life was rather circumscribed. Um, there were some exciting moments. They really, my, my publisher very much wanted to get some of the books onto film. And he was an old movie guy. He was an old Hollywood script writer. And he would come out to uh, Los Angeles and sell uh, some of the uh, books. Uh, he, uh, it was Gold Medal Publications, and his name was Dick Carroll. He knew everybody in Hollywood, and I went to Bel Air Hotel on several occasions and the Beverly Hills and met some very interesting people. They were talking about making a movie with um, Sal Mineo, but <laughs> it was too scary. You couldn't be a public gay person back then. You forfeited too much. Um, you were you You were classified as someone with a a psychological disorder, and you were thought of as contagious. So that part was very difficult. And for that reason, I, in my private life, was really very reticent. Um, a few members of my family knew what I was doing, including my mother, who was very gracious about it. But she, of course, had proudly told all her friends, Anne is writing a book. So when it came out, <laughs> you can imagine, we want to read it. And Mother had to say, I'm sorry, I, I don't, I, I know she'll do better in the future, but this is not the book. <laughs> and then eventually and you went me, and did the academic life. <laughs> oh, yes, I did. I, I redeemed myself in her eyes, but uh, her main injunction was, do not show this to your grandmother. <laughs> and I, I was very cautious about that. So not many people knew. But I can tell you that by the middle of my academic career, I was still a faculty member here at Sacramento State. People began to know about the books because a new edition was brought out by Niad Press and also by the New York Times, of all people, in hard covers. I finally made a respectable publisher. And um, so our library knew about them and had a full set of the books. Um, people around campus uh, would come up and talk to me about them. I thought maybe I was in big trouble, but people were exceedingly gracious and really it was enough of a different time so that I I found that it was well accepted. Uh, the books were thought to be interesting and fun, and um, I really never had to suffer consequences for it. 
So I, I'm I remain very grateful to the institution for that, and um, yeah, I think it's a measure of even by that time how how far things had improved. Not that we ever you know think we're satisfied, but but even then you could see what direction things were trending. So, um, Monica, I want to ask you how Anne's Pulp Fiction and, and that by other writers inform the writing that you do now in your Lesbian Career Girl series. Well, the, the Lesbian Career Girl series is completely inspired by the Pulp Fiction of the the late 50s and early 60s. So I think I, I try, I, I mean, I try to take a lot of the same situations and twist them, um, twist them around a little bit. Um, so I I use uh the all fa- all female environment um my I don't have a sorority house but I have a boarding house that's girls mm-hmm. women only boarding house and um yeah and you know I have I have bathroom encounters and I I really do need a massage scene. And um, well, you've got the shower scene. I have As a, a shower matter of fact, scene. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if you could read that one right now. Sure. This is from Lois Lenz, lesbian secretary, and this is um, this is the very opening chapter. It takes place in a high school in a in the high school gymnasium um, locker room. Steam filled the empty locker room, drifting over the white sinks and rows of green lockers like mist rolling in from the ocean. Drops of water formed on the underside of the long benches where the girls sat to change out of their gym uniforms and dripped onto the gray and green tiled floor. The steam wrapped around Lois' lens like a damp towel as she stood just outside the shower stall. Her brassiere dangled forgotten from one hand as she gazed at her best friend, Faye. The steam blurred the outlines of Faye Collins's slender, athletic body as she turned slowly this way and that under the spray, luxuriating in the hot water that pummeled her tender flesh. Lois's eyes devoured the white shoulders, the high breasts, the pouting mouth. That mouth, she thought, that pink, glistening mouth. Your lipstick, is it that new kiss-proof kind? murmured Lois huskily. Yes, Faye replied, flashing a tantalizing smile at Lois. It's called strawberry ice. Suddenly, she uncoiled one soapy arm and reached out to the other girl. Come and try it, she whispered, pulling Lois under the spray. It's not really my color, Lois managed to gasp before she surrendered to Faye's embrace. The feel of her friend's satin skin against her own bare flesh, the touch of Faye's tongue on her own, set a fire burning inside Lois that no no shower could put out. A moan escaped her when Faye's supple fingers trailed down the small of her back. The steady rush of water all but covered the faint sound. Still, Faye stopped what she was doing to hiss. Lois! Sorry, muttered Lois, wrapping her arms around the other girl. She covered Faye's mouth with her own, silencing any further protest. I want to ask you a little bit more, Monica, about Maxie Mainwaring, lesbian dilettante. It's in my opinion, it seems like it's more serious. It has more references to social and political forces at the time. You know, police raids on lesbian and gay bars, 
One of the characters is writing for a lesbian magazine or newsletter like the latter that Phyllis Lyon and Mm -hmm. Del Martin uh, started here in San Francisco. And I'm curious about that change in tone or is that, you know, is that my imagination or or is that? No, no, that's not your imagination. It's um, partly because the the books are moving forward in time. So Lois Lenz takes place in 1959 and um, there are overlapping characters and they're it's all centered around Bay City for the most part, um, where the girls live. But by the time we get to Maxie Mainwaring, it's 1964, um, which, of course, was Freedom Summer. I just that's on my mind because I just saw a documentary about it. So it was there, it was. Ago. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was a it was a time of unrest. And I, I think that um, social change was in the air. And I wanted to reflect that in the book. And. um and you, we had talked on the phone about um, this, you know, the the raids. Since we were talking about raids on 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 bars, lesbian and gay bars. Mm-hmm. Your your book, dis, you know, has this very good description of Greenwich Village at the time. And uh, by the way, I'm curious to know: Did you spend a lot of time? Did you live in Greenwich Village, or did you just go there for research? Or oh, I wish I could have. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was there in spirit. <laughs> I was there physically as much as I could be. Uh, For a while, when I first began to write, uh, we did live in Philadelphia, and it wasn't hard to get up to the village uh, by train. But um, after I wrote Odd Girl Out, we moved to Southern California. But even then, I was able to fly back on several occasions. And uh, I just loved it. I walked all over the village. I went to all the bars. I would walk home utterly fearless out of sheer stupidity at 4 in the morning. I'd walk through Washington Square. And I never uh, feared man nor beast, (laughs) which I should have. But it was an innocent time, I think. Think. Well, now, um, but you've got it. There's a scene from the um, uh, that we talked about. You reading the, uh, the the dance bar scene where Bebo Brinker first goes out. She's she's newly arrived from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Sounded kind of like you. I wasn't sure since you grew up in Illinois. Um, and uh, you know, she meets this guy Jack, who takes her up off the street, and 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 you know, he's this gay guy who's who sort of uh, takes her under his wing, and find, she finally gets the nerve to go to this one dance bar. Or a bar where women mm-hmm. dance, anyway. And can you mm-hmm. can you read part of that scene? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Bebo is going out uh, a little bit of nightclub hopping all on her own for the first time without uh, her friend Jack along as a chaperone. And so the girls in the bar have sort of become acquainted with her, and she's quite a striking figure. She's tall, very strongly built, handsome girl, and uh, but very kind of solitary, and they don't quite know what to make of her or how to approach her. So that's what this little scene is about. She took a seat at the bar. Scotch and water, she said. While the barman got it, she gazed idly into the mirror behind him, picking out the interesting girls surrounding her. She felt uncomfortable here in the pants she usually wore to work, in her hair that had just been cut and was too short again. The bartender brought her another drink while she searched for the last cigarette in her pack. It was empty. The girl sitting next to her immediately offered her one, but Bebo declined. It was partly her shyness, partly the knowledge that it was better to be hard to get in the Colophon bar. Do you have cigarettes, she asked the bartender. Machine by the wall, he said. She got up and sauntered over, ignoring the outrage on the face of the girl at the bar. 
The machine swallowed her coins and spit out a pack of filter tips. Bebo noticed the jukebox, looked at her change, and fed it a quarter, good for three dances. She liked to watch the girls move around the floor together, now that the initial revolt had worn off. But when she regained her seat, she found most of the patrons paying attention to her, not the tunes. She looked back at them, surprised and wary. The cigarettes in her hand were an excuse to look away for a minute, and she did, lighting one while the general conversation died away like a weak breeze. She lowered her match slowly and glanced up again, her skin prickling. What were they trying to do? Scare her out? Show her they didn't like her? Had she been too aloof with them, too remote and hard to know? She had started the music, and it was an invitation to dance. They were waiting for her to show them. It wasn't hostility she saw in their faces so much as, "'Show us if you're so damn big and smart. "'We've been waiting for a chance to trap you. "'This is it.' She had to do something to humanize herself. There was an air of self-confidence and sensual promise about Bebo that she couldn't help, and when she felt neither confident nor sensual, she looked all the more as if she did, tall and strong and coolly sure of herself. She had turned the drawback of being young and ignorant into a deliberate defense. It didn't matter to the sophisticated girls judging her now that she was a country girl, fresh from the hayfields of Wisconsin, or that she had never made love to a woman before in her life. They didn't know that, and wouldn't have believed it anyway. Bebo recognized quickly that she had to start acting the way she looked. She had established a mood of expectation about herself, and now it was time to come across. The music played on. It was Bebo's turn. The match she held was burning near her finger, and because she had to do something about it, and all the eyes on her, she turned to the girl beside her and held out the match. Blow, she said simply, <laughs> and the girl, with a smile, blew. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, speaking of blowing, I think that's a good time to turn to gay male pulp. Oh yeah. Um, you know a little bit about it. I mean, neither of you wrote it, but there's, but, uh, but Monica, you've written about it in your on your blog and and this panel that you had last fall, where I met Anne at the San Francisco Library. So they came along later, right? And what, do you right. suppose why that is? And did they? Do you get the sense that they had uh, the same sort of impact, or was it a very different thing in some way? It it came along later. It was a bit of a different thing. Um, they're sort of only coming into their own now. They're sort of getting the sort of recuperation that happened to lesbian pulps a little while ago. One of the things that's interesting about it is it was a heck of a lot raunchier, I think, from the start, the mid-60s stuff at least. But I think there – am I right about that, Anne, that they were a lot sexier, that there was there was sort of more sex happening in the gay male pulps? I, yes, I think they were more, much more candid about it. Yeah. And I think maybe that, uh, you know, they had a tougher time getting some traction. One, one great advantage of the lesbian pulps was that they appealed enormously to men. Absolutely. Everywhere. Yeah. You know, that's a question marketed. I was wondering. Yeah. How do, how do you get a sense of who your audience was? <laughs> do you get a sense of how many men were buying your books as opposed to women? And I, by the way, Monica did confess to me earlier that she actually enjoys, or I don't know if you enjoy it, but you, you read, uh, straight porn for 
inspiration in some Porn? way. Ideas. I don't erotica. <laughs> I'm sorry. Erotica. Erotica. Don't, don't make me worse than I am, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I do. No, it, I it well, I, re- I read it as well. <laughs> I read everything, and and um, but I do think that gay male pulps had a harder time, and so and maybe that's mm-hmm. in, in a way that they were they were strictly more strictly for a gay male audience than lesbian pulps were where there was that overlap and yeah and did you get did you get letters ever from from men oh or? yes oh i got what a would great they say? many letters uh that they found it very uh arousing and fun <laughs> uh some of them well you know there i think i mentioned this at the uh panel last fall there there is graffiti on the walls of caves in norway that was put there over a thousand years ago referring to uh the girls in the next cave uh, if you want a wonderful <laughs> night you know or or as you approached uh, many of the cities in ancient greece uh there would be posts along the way inviting you to particular kinds of brothels where right. uh, there were uh, ladies to be seen together. Right. I, I think it really, but this this is an ancient fascination on the part of many men, mostly straight, yeah. whereas the men had yet to find their crossover audience. It sure. was there, but they didn't know how to appeal to it, and it began to surface, I think, when Star Trek first came out on right. television. Yeah. So. And women have been writing, they have been writing uh, fanzine Fan fiction, articles sure. about Mr. Spock and uh, Captain Kirk um, for a long time. And yeah. That kind and that's, of I just saw, people... somebody just showed me a video about that a while ago. Well, and that's also, mm-hmm. that's like a, a big, uh, uh, there's a large number of straight women writing gay male romance today, which still I yes. find a fascinating fact. Huh. Kind yes. of inspiring, kind of just boggling my mind. But, yeah, <laughs> it, it's. Uh, I would have to say it's different from the original gay male um, pulps. Yeah, but uh, it has found a much broader audience of both men and women. So you know, there's something for everyone. But I think the guys had a longer, uh, steeper right. hill to climb to to f- find their audience, and it was mainly originally confined to other young men or other gay right. men. And you know, that's an interesting thing. One of the the fascinating things I read in this book is that the the publishers of that time, you know, the sleazy paperback publishers who were putting out the gay male pulps, and this is again a little later than the lesbian pulps. We're talking the mid '60s. Um, mm-hmm. They, some of the writers, were complaining about the fact that they were basically required to have a sex scene in every chapter. I mean, that's really, and they wanted, you know, they were more interested in doing narratives, you know, doing narrative stuff, telling the story, and they were like, and which I think is so ironic because the 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 thing you get with the lesbian pulps is that. Um, you know, they they were required not to have a happy ending, whereas the men had to just put as much sex in as they could. Hey, we're mm. almost out of time. I'm sorry about that. I want to thank you so much both for being here. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure. Yeah. You've been listening to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. To share this show with friends or hear it again and hear past shows, just go to our website, outinthebay.org. You might also make a donation there to help us keep bringing queer air to your ears. Just hit the Donate tab on our website, outinthebay.org. Thank you. And thanks to especially generous donors Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley and Cornelia Enders of San Francisco. Our theme music was written and performed by Holly Mead. 
please send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Out in the Bay SF at gmail.com. Really? Are you out there? Please let us know what you think, where you are, and how you're hearing us. That's out in the Bay SF at gmail.com. I'm Eric Jansen. Thank you for listening and thanks for joining us out in the Bay. Thank you.